Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Good evening, everybody. How's everyone doing? Uh, hamster wheel. You all feeling like you're on a hamster wheel? Not everyone is. That's the uh, little bit of the feeling I have these days. It's like I said, it's that round robin of uh, bed, couch, table to do some work, but the world's opening up. I've been hitting some outdoor coffee shops, sitting outside, keeping my distance from people, but, um, that's been feeling great. Uh, also been slowly at odd times when it's quiet, been venturing to the gym. Yes. With my mask, staying away from individuals needing to, um, just add a little more access to my day to make me feel like I'm participating in the world. So play it safe. <clears throat> you know, you got to still be smart. I wear my mask. I stay away from individuals. I don't go into small clients, you know, uh, enclosed spaces around individuals. It's got to be wide open, distant, you know, not populated. The minute I'm anywhere and it gets crowded, I bounce. Uh, taking all this very seriously, both because of my own health, I have <clears throat> genetically inherited somewhat of a compromised immune system. Thanks, mom. Um, multiple family members of mine struggle with that. And so we tend to pick up anything and everything. And so uh, longer story, but the short of it is I have to be a little more thoughtful than most. Um, speaking of free COVID, I mean, sorry, free COVID. It actually is free. Uh, free with your COVID shot. The list is growing. So far we have, you can get free beer, free arcade tokens, and free Krispy Kreme donuts. Now I'm sure the, lot, the list is growing. Love this. It's an incentive. It's more cute than not. I, I'm not sure that someone's like, well, I wasn't going to get the vax, which I wish y'all would, but I'm imagining the anti-vaxxers aren't like, but you said the free donut. <laughs> I don't know if anyone's going to get it in service of free donut, but I like the idea. I like what they're trying to do. They're like, look, we're going to do what we can do. Companies are saying we're going to pitch in. That's the way to do it. Now, of course, we've got those people that uh, are pushing back saying, oh, we're battling with this O word, obesity. Now, obesity is a pejorative. The uh, fat rights community has asked us over and over to not use that word. It's a medicalized, pathologized term for people that are larger bodied. And it often assumes that whatever they're going through or struggling with is related to their body. And that leads to a lot of misdiagnoses death and people not going to the doctor for fear of being shamed. So remember, I want to say this to everyone, but especially people living in larger bodies, you have a right to tell your doctor you're not interested in being weighed or being told your weight. You also have a right to get the same healthcare and ac uh, access to the same loving supportive healthcare as, you know, straight sized or smaller sized individuals. And um, let's stop using the word obesity, which means a lot of people have to have a lot of words removed from books they might have put out there, God bless y'all. But it's an offensive term because it's zeroing in on someone's weight as though that's the end all be all. And we know that health can exist at every size. You can be larger bodied and healthy and you can be smaller lean bodied and be very unhealthy. I've sat next to many people that looked quote unquote healthy with the standardized gym body as they were pumping down 
scoop after scoop of bizarre chemical soups while pounding a Red Bull while taking their steroids. Please don't tell me that that's healthy, right? All of our bodies have the ability to be healthy at different sizes. My poor father, who was smaller bodied and very healthy, died of a random heart attack. And I have tons of friends in larger bodies that um, are athletes. So we need to get rid of that. Uh, because that's immediately what people start pushing back on when they heard the free donuts. Calm down, a donut's not gonna kill anyone. Literally, it won't. We have to stop putting judgment and labels on foods as good or bad. All foods provide different things and mental health matters. And for some people, a donut provides something very beneficial in terms of mental health. I will sometimes use food to cope with feelings. You can eat your feelings, yes, because the work is about intuitive eating, letting food exist in your life in a more neutral way, not having fear of it. And sometimes the best thing in the day is to sit there and eat donuts. Our goal in life does not need to be healthy if you don't even want. That's the other thing you have to get rid of is this health pleasing. You don't have to be healthy if you don't want. It'd be great if you do. I offer a lot of ideas and my books are rooted in those that want to work on mental health, but you don't have to. But bigger than that, I want everyone to heal their relationship with food. Our, our goal in life is not to look hot and desirable and our number one goal in life shouldn't have to be to fit this monolithic body norm. Everyone has worth and value, regardless of what decisions they make or their genetics. And again, I'll say this over and over, we know that diets have up to like a 99% failure rate, and that a lot of the disorders that come with dieting come from the rapid weight loss, weight cycling, and the stress it puts on people's bodies. And we need to learn how to love and be in the body we're in or neutralize it, you know? And I can't remember where, I flagged it, but I can't find it now. There's yet another article of, oh, Charlie Puth, Puth? I, God bless, don't know this kid. I know he's a big celebrity and there's a photo I saw of him leaving the gym without a shirt. And I, all I thought was human being leaving the gym. Didn't even know it was a celebrity in this article. And I noticed the articles about all the people leaving body shaming comments. Why do y'all think you have a right to talk negatively about someone, especially their body, mind your business. It's so bizarre to me, the trauma that's created. And luckily he has enough body privilege. He's white, cis, hetero, and smaller bodied. He's gonna be unfazed, but people that are in larger bodies, they see that and it reinforces the idea that the world isn't safe and that people will determine your worth as a human and feel free to attack you publicly if they're uncomfortable with the size of your body. Y'all, we gotta do better. That is not being trauma-informed, That is not not being mental health centered. It's also just not just like that is very unkind. And you're telling on yourself, your little name and face is right there. Like you're telling the world, I'm a horrible human being, truly. And y'all do some of that on my posts. Like your little name and face there is just like saying, I'm a horrible human being, watch me go. You know what I mean? We gotta do better. Social media should not be weaponized, but larger bodies deserve as much care and respect as gym and smaller bodies, you know? All right, you're listening to Loveline with Dr. Chris on the new channel Q and Odyssey. All right, we're back and uh, we're talking about common marital problems. Now, the reason why we're gonna be doing that is so that we can make sure, what? That we don't, we don't fall into these patterns and habits. <laughs> it's about calling self out, calling other out, right? Long-term relationships are hard, right? I'm always gonna say that, but they shouldn't be that hard. They take work, but not that much work. 
you know, it, there's a fine line where I want people to stick around longer and do the work, but I also want people to leave sooner and not allow toxic relationships to drag on. I see far too many because I think a lot of work or a lot of toxicity or a lot of violence has actually been normalized. Uh, I released an article on toxic monogamy, which is the toxic forms monogamy can take, AKA emotional abuse. And it was really looking at the forms of emotional abuse that we've actually normalized, that we allow, that we sign off on, that we put on television. And when we see, it, we all just nod along like, yeah, that's how it is. That's, what's ma- that's what marriage is like. That's what having a boyfriend is like. And it's like, no, no, actually. It should be about care. It should be about love, fun, support, learning, growing, being challenged painful growth and transformation at times, but it shouldn't make your life harder. It shouldn't make your life more complex. It shouldn't make you feel bad. It shouldn't make you scared or anxious. Those words should never be utilized when talking about a romantic relationship or any relationship. I don't care if it's your mom, dad. I don't care if it's your boss. I don't care if it's your colleague. It should never be rooted in fear, anxiety, control, or dominance. Do better, because we take on Loveline a mental health perspective, mental health first, and those things don't honor that. I'd rather people be more single, have less friends, than encountering these toxic elements in their lives, but we've normalized them from teachers. Hey, teachers, you should never be dominating or making a student fearful or anxious. That is not your job. Hey, bosses, if you are using power and dominance and bullying to run your business, shame on you. Hey, husbands, wives, boys, friends, and girlfriends, you should not be in relationships where your partners are afraid to let you down or disappoint you or set boundaries or tell you truth. I want us all to be better. I want us all to do better. We should be leading with compassion and care. If nothing else, that's what the pandemic taught us. We need each other. We need to look out for each other. We did not learn that lesson. So as you enter into your relationships or stay in them or maintain them, right? Be better, be better. Go read that article, be better. So we're gonna talk about some of the common mistakes that happen in these relationships because again, we're trying to be better. (laughs) Okay, so taking an interest in each other's interests. Love that because again, the number one thing that healthy, happy, long-term sustainable couples have is friendship. They enjoy each other. They like each other. You don't have to have things in common, but you have to have respect for what the other has in terms of what they're interested in. You have to have respect for it. You have to value it. You have to support it. You don't have to have the same things in common though. Be interested, be engaged. And and those are the other words you're gonna hear. They're present, they're engaged. But again, they take an interest. They'll ask questions, they'll follow up, they show they care, they're happy when you're participating in these things. It's this friendship piece. I, I often will keep hearing this like thread of friendship that is what we're kind of talking about. You're constantly hearing that coming in and out. And that just means that we care, we're kind, you know? So again, We want everyone to do couples time together. We want people to do individual time together. If you don't enjoy what they enjoy, if you have a lot of other levels of compatibility and chemistry, that's cool. That's cool because they can go do those things with themselves for other people, but you have to at least respect it. And you want to take an interest in it. You don't want to shame it. You don't want to make their intent to engage or have these things in their lives harder or more difficult. Okay. Also, here comes a tough one. Ready? Money. I know. It's a hard one. When we're talking about money, we're talking about a lot of different factors, but let's talk about it in terms of the active present form. That's about how we spend and what we spend our money on. Money's a big source of tension. Money leads to a lot of conflict and fights. Well, it's because we live in the kind of world we live in where people's needs aren't always met, right? And so people's worth is often tied to what they can purchase and their job. And so that's part of it. So we have to look at the reasons behind our habits. What does that mean for us, right? 
how can we understand each other by looking and learning about how they spend and what their habits are. Sometimes it's to find joy and pleasure. Other times it's to determine their worth and it's tied to their ego, right? So it's about checking in and figuring out and really unpacking lovingly these things. So you have to set expectations about sharing, about how combination or keeping our money separate impacts each other, right? Checking in on things. This is how we learn though about what kind of long-term relationship we can have in terms of health. Because if we can manage these things early on and we can have these kinds of difficult conversations lovingly, pretty confident that we can have other difficult conversations. And then that ties into, the, you know, again, the ability to talk about intimacy changes and shifts, right? Because again, part of a relationship, and we saw that a lot with COVID, is that we're gonna be sometimes moving close and then disconnecting. And there's even a natural rhythm to that with uh, mother and child, you know, or early caregiver and child where there's a connection, disconnection, connection, disconnection. Everyone needs that, that, that together and separation time. And again, some people are on more polarized ends of the continuum where some people need a lot more, enjoy a lot more closeness and connection and others need a little more time and space. We've talked about that in terms of love languages where some people's love language is about time apart. And for them to feel loved, they need their partners to support and give them that time away and that time apart. And for, and for people on higher levels where they've moved into the second phase of life where it's no longer about them up against the world and ego, materialism, and their gym body, and they moved on to a higher plane of just thinking about what's my purpose here? What's my legacy? What's important to me? Is my life rooted in purpose and meaning? Well, those are the individuals that spend more time alone. It's a very introspective state, and I, and I seek that. I also help usher clients into that. Usually it's a later life, later in life part of thing. And that's when we know we're moving into the second phase of life. It's not a, um, what do they call it? Midlife crisis. It's a midlife breakthrough. It's a breakthrough where you realize I'm not living a life that's rooted in truth for me or health or mental health. And I want to spend the rest of my time moving into this like second phase where everything is worth and meaning. What am I doing here? And so that's that like really, 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 really powerful moment of shift. And you hope that your partner can be on that journey with you. We can take a quick break and when we come back, we're gonna keep talking about um, common mistakes couples make, but uh, we're gonna talk the big, the big J word. Oh, that's right, that powerful, scary J word. So stick around for that one. All right, you're listening to Loveline with Dr. Chris on the new channel Q and Odyssey. All right, we're back and we're talking about some common obstacles in uh, relationships, all of them, but we're talking more about the romantic side. And uh, I was teasing about the, we're going to talk about the J word, the scary, scary J word, jealousy. I know, it horrifies people. It's probably one of those things that, um, well, if we work with it appropriately, we can learn about our vulnerabilities. We can learn where our triggers are, where our wounds are. Remember, triggers show us where our work is. When we're triggered, we, we have to look back at self and say, wow, where's my work here? What do I need to learn about this? Where do I need to do some more healing and growth before we even put on the other person for having triggered us or asking them to stop triggering us? It's a, it's a mirror being held up. It's reflective. And all jealousy, before we act it out on our partner, if we're made jealous, we need to interrogate it. We need to say, again, do I want to honor this jealousy? Is this real? Is there something real here that happened? Or is this just me being anxious and it's my work and I need to learn how to let go and trust because I'm with someone I trust? Because again, all these conversations on Loveline are assuming you're with someone that's worthy of trust. And if not, leave. You do not have a healthy relationship. But if you trust them, then that's that moment where jealousy arises and you say, ah, there's something here for me to learn. This is where my work begins, right? Um, 
And so when jealousy comes up, don't panic, but also know, like pause, ground yourself, think, is this, is this, is this relevant? Is this realistic? Is this necessary? Do I even need or want this honored? Because you don't want to move through a relationship constantly being jealous of things, feeling so threatened by things, and then making your partner responsible for that, responsible for making sure those things are never, are never brought in. And that can be exhausting. And I'm not talking about having sex with others and cheating. I mean the fact that we are often made jealous and it's been normalized by uh, bumping into our, our, our current partner's ex or like all sorts of bizarre things. Or we're made jealous when we have to acknowledge that our partner has been sexual and had a life prior to meeting us. And we want to be angry at them. I even saw a meme about someone dreaming that they were cheated on and still wanted to act out that anger in real time on their partner. It's like, and we laugh and we normalize. It's like, be better. Uh, really understand that your partner's mental health, along with your friends and everyone else in your life, is impacted by your health and what you bring into their lives. Impact them in a way that's positive. Don't make people's lives harder. That's why jealousy is not always to be honored. And I say that to the other people. Just because you do something that makes someone jealous doesn't mean it has to be honored. You can say, I hear you and I want to be here for that, but I'm okay with what I did. I'm okay with being best friends with my ex because they're healthy. I'm okay with acknowledging I've had sex and relationships before you. I'm okay with bumping into an ex and I'm not going to make them feel bad. There's nothing wrong here. You're allowed to give that jealousy back to the person who's triggered. I do in relationships want people to be empathetic, but you're allowed to say, I can't honor that, right? And that's really a funky part. Jealousy is a really powerful moment that shows us again where our work is, but also lets us know how healthy this relationship is going to be based on how we manage that or all conflict, right? Because conflict is a sign of how healthy we're going to be. Now, if someone's jealous, I would say the person who's jealous, sometimes you don't need to, again, bring it up or act it out. You just go get soothing. If I'm with a partner or on a date and I'm feeling jealous or upset about something, I'll hold their hand or I'll lean on them or I'll just look at them and I'll do things to ground me and bring me back to the fact that I'm with someone and I am safe and they love me. And that can work on the other end. If your partner's looking or seeming jealous, talk to them, reinvest in them. Maybe it's a sign to reprioritize them a little bit. Maybe it's a time to give them some compliments, to spend time with them, to be reassuring. I'm okay with that. You don't have to honor what happened, but you can still reassure them. You can say, hey, I, that yeah, that's one of my best friends who happens to also be an ex of mine. I can understand where that might be uncomfortable for some people. Come here, I love you. And you give them a kiss, kiss their hands and say, let's go do something. You know what I mean? You can reinforce and reinvest without honoring all that's going on. Just more tension, some more time, more care. Um, another thing that's interesting that comes up is also boredom or drifting apart. And again, that's kind of like the jealousy thing. That doesn't mean the relationship's bad, broken, or over. Maybe it's a, t it's a sign that we need to reinvest. I tell couples all the time in early relationship, don't, don't make every night a blockbuster night. Wait as long as possible. Spend as much time as you can on the front end, really getting out in the world and doing things. Make yourself get on clo put clothes on and go out and go on dates. Don't get that lazy and comfortable that quickly because that can bring in undue, unnecessary boredom because we're not still learning about each other and exploring the world. And that's something a lot of long-term couples need to do as well down the road is say, hey, we haven't really been going out. And that's why I love the idea of date nights and couples day where you go out, you explore, you see, you participate in the world, you have new experiences together. So a lot of times that boredom or that drift is just the need for renewal. Even jealousy can be a sign. We need some time together. We need renewal. So use these things as maybe symptoms of something bigger versus always being a red flag or a warning sign. Because I think we panic too quickly, too often. And we don't need to, you know? And I call these things out so that you see them coming. I could talk about couples issues every show, the entire show, because there's so much. 
but I always try to distill it down to the key issues. Friendship is important, enjoying and liking each other. And then second to that, really working and being better about jealousy and owning, feeling jealous. And then third, keep it fresh, keep it fun, keep it new. You know, keep it active, stay out in the world, keep participating. All right, coming up next, we're gonna be sliding into those DMs. If you got a DM for us, drop it in our Loveline AG page. Anything you wanna know about, we're here for you. And then we're gonna be uh, talking about sex addiction, actually debunking it, the myth of sex addiction. It's been back in the, brought back in the news because of the shootings in Atlanta. But um, we need to just kind of touch down and um, dive in a little bit. So stick around for that. You're listening to Loveline with Dr. Chris on the new channel Q and Odyssey. All right, we're back. Gosh, New York City, uh, New York City, New York Post. Fauci says breakthrough COVID cases post vaccination are not surprising. I know we've been telling y'all uh, you can still get COVID even with those vaccinations. Post vaccination breakthrough, busting through that vaccination. Uh, uh, we have to keep taking it seriously. Uh, here's a quote with regard to the breakthrough cases of people who have been vaccinated, ultimately have gotten the infection. Obviously, this is something we take seriously and follow closely. I know y'all, we're not out of the woods yet. Again, that's why I keep saying, you're, I know you're all ready for your uh, hot, hot summer, but um, still battling a uh, pandemic. Bums people out, I know. All right, y'all, guess what though? Time to slide into those DMs. Sliding into the DMs. All right, here we go. Tonight's question is, hey, Dr. Chris, my name is Abby. Recently lost my best friend to a drunk driving accident. Sorry to hear that. It's really, really, really difficult. Her boyfriend was driving. Oh, man. And he was drunk and they lost control of the car. He survived. He reaches out almost every day, but I'm still so mad at him. As much as I miss her, I'm mad at her too. Will this feeling ever go away? I don't know. I don't know. Um, grief and loss is not a, you know, path that everyone goes on that looks the same. It's often very circular, meaning at times we feel like we're over it and we've moved on and at other times it comes back. And remember a lot of mental health struggles, especially grief and loss, you know, our brain's very associative and it will often see triggers and it will bring up memories and memories will carry with them feelings. So we don't ever get over, we just uh, encounter it differently. You know, we hope the feelings are less severe, less often. But yeah, maybe you will be frustrated. I don't know the circumstances, but if you feel as though they weren't being smart or taking care of themselves or being thoughtful, it's hard to get through. Um, yeah, you might have to work on doing a little forgiveness or maybe giving it more time. I don't know. But it's okay to sometimes hold that anger. You know, we use a trauma-informed approach, which means anyone who has any feelings about a situation doesn't necessarily have to force themselves to get over it, especially not to make other people feel more comfortable with their process. These things take time. You know, um, I lost my father a few years ago and it's something that's still very much with me. It becomes a companion on your journey. People have left their body, but they still exist. They still exist psychologically and emotionally and uh, through memory, right? We encounter them throughout the day. A song reminds us of them. They, they float into our minds and that's the thing. They're no longer physically there, but they're never gone. And with them not being gone, we'll have those feelings, you know? I hope you though can think about what it was about that friendship and that person that meant a lot to you. And then what I think the beautiful work is, is embodying those characteristics and living them out and taking them forward in honor of your friend who's no longer physically here in the physical sense in, in their body, you know? That's how we kind of still spend time with them and that's how we still kind of honor their loss. Uh, grief and loss is one of the hardest things to get through, you know? And it's something that we'll encounter throughout the duration of our entire lives. 
I know it's hard. And whenever I hear that, it makes me sit in all the grief and loss that I've, you know, been on the journey with clients as they work through and process and just kind of my own. Um, but as far as your relationship with the boyfriend who was driving, that might be maybe a more accessible or not place to kind of try to start to do some of this healing, spending time with him, talking to him about it. If you feel like it makes sense to you, maybe forgiving him, um, talking to him about some of the memories. And if not, maybe doing that with other friends. That's kind of how we can best sometimes get through and process. Um, but also just like a sidestep outside of that. Listen, we have to take you know, our alcohol and drug use very seriously and be more thoughtful. You know, and maybe that's also what you take for just talking to your friends about designated drivers, taking ride shares, um, having friends look out for each other, being better about boundaries. A lot comes up with things like this, you know, but um, I'm sorry to hear about that. I know that that's a very difficult thing, especially depending on whatever else is going on in your life. You know, we don't always lose someone at a good time for us when we have the space to really grieve and mourn. Sometimes we have to find ways to do it in inopportune phases of our life. So, all right, y'all, coming up next, dun-dun-dun, sex addiction. I know, it's something that's slung around very easily. We're going to be debunking it, talking about better perspectives. Um, really, really, really controversial topic. Whenever I post about it on my own social media, it brings up a lot of people's feelings. So we're going to be doing a little bit of a deep dive into that. And of course, then we'll be closing out the show with some more DMs. You're listening to Love Line with Dr. Chris on the new channel Q and Odyssey. All right, we're back and uh, we're spending the rest of the night talking about sex addiction. And before I even really unpack this, I wanna kind of just, uh, I guess, give a little bit of background as to why I think this is a really important topic. So the first thing to understand is that sex addiction is not real. Um, <clears throat> disclaimer, that doesn't mean that individuals do not struggle with their sexuality, sexual acceptance, integrating and normalizing and feeling confident in the kinds of things that turn people on. People can sometimes feel like they don't have great boundaries or impulse control. People can feel like maybe their uh, use of pornography or solo sexuality or even partnered sexuality can be at times a little out of control. So it's not to deny that people struggle. And I always recommend someone seeing a certified sex therapist, CST, and that's someone who has a year, year, multiple years long, like myself, uh, training and certification in the ability to work with sexuality. Um, human sexuality, sex therapy, sexology, working with anatomy, um, cultural stuff, religious stuff, uh, sexual functioning, sexual pain, all these different factors. And that's really important because a certified sex addiction therapist is only trained in one model, and that is to identify and work with what they deem to be sex addiction. Now, that's something that came out of um, the, that was created by the person who runs the program himself. And so it's very much a feedback loop. And the reason why we have to dismantle the, the existence of this is because it's leading people to get some really sexually abusive sex negative treatment. Um, there's a lot of people writing about the problems with that model. In fact, there's more research against it than there is in support of it. But yet a lot of naive therapists and the media and the legal team and medical field have just really accepted it because we bizarrely and oddly think that you can just take a mo treatment model and some theories for drug and alcohol abuse or misuse and just apply it to anything else and it will translate and work and it doesn't. And it's very similar to working with you know, food, people with disor uh, disordered relationships to food. You can't be addicted to food. Food is a healthy, our hunger and the desire for food is a natural healthy system. 
And, you know, drugs and alcohol, the work is about removing them if they're problematic or learning how to have a healthier relationship, but you don't need drugs or alcohol. So the complete removal is often the easiest solution for many people. And you can go on and live a great life. But with food and sex, you can't remove those things. And those are healthy drives that are always operating on you. It's like hunger, a need for air, the desire for sleep, hydration. People don't understand that sexuality is everything and everywhere. It's not just this thing we do at home while naked with another person. Our sexuality is what we choose to wear. Our sexuality is the eye contact we make or don't make or break. It's how close we stand to people. It's literally things we're thinking about. You can be being sexual in your head by looking at your phone, by thinking thoughts. Your sexuality is when you're looking around the room and you're noticing things that are attractive or arousing to you. It's far larger than just an action or a behavior. It's far larger than what we just do with our bodies. It's a way we carry ourselves. It's a presence. It's an energy. Uh, Freud was one of the first people to talk about libidinal energy. And libidinal energy is really just about passion, things that turn you on in every level. And artists know this, how you get so turned on and passionate about your work, right? And maybe people that are car fanatics will see certain cars and they literally arouse you and turn you on. I'm that way with certain foods, with baked goods. I see the right pack of vegan donuts and you would think I was having sex with the looks and expressions and sounds on my face and that are coming out of my mouth. So my point is sexuality is everywhere and we have to learn how to integrate it. Where the sex addiction model really says that sex is the issue and it's about removing it. Um, it really, really, really shames and problematizes a lot of different parts of sexuality that are actually healthy. And the goal is not to remove things, right? You know, very, again, very much uh, with the food or eating disordered examples, just like sex, the, the real work, health and transformation aren't about removing fun, fun, healthy or fun foods. It's, you know, the transformation work is not about getting rid of sex or porn. The work is not about not eating donuts and ice cream and cookies. It's learning how to enjoy them and to view them with neutrality. It's, it's about working to take all that power out, right? And, 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 not, and not shaming these things and learning how to have them be a part of your life because they are a part of life, right? When I think about junk food and snacks, it's, it's part of us celebrating success or someone's birthday. It's a, it's a form of self-care after we've had a rough day. It's a way to put a smile on our face. You know, and we'll talk about this more, but sex is great for coping. If you've had a rough day, you're anxious. Sex or soul sex or masturbation is a great way to cope with that. Self-soothing, coping. It's very much a right brain activity. We talked about this. It's like yoga. It's like meditation. It's like reading. It's like taking a bath. It's all right brain activities. And these are things that are always operating on us. And we have to learn how to encounter them. So again, it's not to say that some people won't say, wow, my sex feels out of control, but it's not. It's not, because for most people, much like food, you're not gonna walk around the streets just assaulting people and forcing sexuality on them and grabbing food out of their hands or out of the trash and eating it. You know, a lot of people feel out of control around food, but what we start to help them feel empowered around is that we actually can wait till we are in a place that's safe to eat, or we can choose the foods often that we wanna consume. There's control in that, same thing with sex. We find the, the right places with the right people to engage in these things. You know, I have yet to see someone having sex in the cereal aisle of whole foods because they just can't stop. No one's ever shown up in my office who's identified as a sex addict having sex or masturbating in my waiting room because they can't stop. They are able to. It just feels difficult. And it's not to minimize or take that away. It's just we have to move away from using the word sex addiction. And when we come back, we're going to talk about why because there's powerful systemic institutional reasons as to why. So stick around. You're listening to Love Line with Dr. Chris on the new channel Q and Odyssey.
All right, we're back. <clears throat> Excuse me. And we're talking about sex addiction. Now, the reason why we want to move away from that word is it doesn't help people really address the core issue of what's going on. Okay. And the treatment model very much just is about removing sexual things and shaming them. There are actual websites by sex addiction treatment providers that say things like healthy sex only takes place within committed relationships. Now that's ridiculous because the bulk of people are having sex outside of committed relationships. Why? Well, because casual sex is appropriate. Hookup culture, there's nothing wrong with it as long as we're taking care of ourselves, asking the right questions, having the right expectations, and having enthusiastic consent ongoing, right? But sexuality is part of dating. It's part of assessing compatibility. So it's about learning how to better operate as a sexual being, not shaming and removing. And the sex addiction treatment paradigm and what they use to determine someone's sex addiction is just rooted in moralization. It's, it's, you know, anyone who pays for sex, well, that's a criteria for sex addiction. Someone who travels for sex, criteria for sex addiction. Someone who maybe enjoys outdoor sex, criteria for sex addiction. It really shames anything that's not heterocentric, penetrative, and within a committed relationship. And that is not fair. That's queerphobic, that's homophobic, that's kink and fetish, shaming and phobic, and just completely ridiculous. Because sex is not about this thing that we need to wait to utilize in service of love. That's such a great gift and something that it provides. But people that are having sex that you're not comfortable hearing about, people that are having diverse creative sex, people that are using sex as a way to socialize and move through the world, that's not an addiction. Right, And a lot of the individuals I work with that come in self-diagnosis of sex addiction, it's just that they don't understand how diverse and creative sex can be. For some of them, it's about reducing shame and accepting that they are turned on by these diverse things. Because that's what people will say. If their arousal are turned on by something that isn't quote unquote normal or makes them uncomfortable, well, they assume that they're addicted to it. And that's why they keep going back and looking at it maybe online or thinking about it. But no, that's how arousal works. Well, think about a food product all day long. We're not addicted to it. It's just that it's very exciting. And and a lot of dopamine is associated with anticipatory things. We get excited thinking about on the way to, right? But that diminishes as we're engaging in something. And so that doesn't mean you're addicted. It just means it has a lot of power. It has a lot of arousal. We have to learn how to work with it. But that's part of the problem. Some people's core arousal, the things that most turn them on are things that they're not comfortable with. But that doesn't mean they're addicted to it. But yes, they will keep being drawn to seeking it because... Well, when you're aroused, you're going to seek the things that are most arousing to you. And so the work is about normalizing and removing the shame around that, not just getting rid of these things. Good luck. We cannot, we cannot remove things that we're aroused by and we don't need to. The sex section module wants to shame. That's sexually abusive to tell someone that the things they're turned on by are bad or wrong, right? It's about impulse control and boundaries. And sex therapy in a sex positive model will help you learn how to accept and integrate. How can we allow and work with? That scares people. Because I'm in a culture where we just want fast, quick, and easy. Just get rid of it, take it away, shame it. And a lot of people are very familiar and comfortable with that. Other people don't even understand the normative levels of soul sexuality. Some people don't understand that. A lot of people will masturbate one, two, or three times a day. And that that's not an addiction. That's that they have the time. That it's a chosen form of joy or pleasure in their life. It's an act of self-care. Or it's a way of coping. And if you're not happy or content with your use, the question is, what are you trying to avoid? What are you not wanting to face? What are you trying to use it to cope with? Getting into the actual issue, not just shaming it or removing it, right? 
And so that's, that's where the issues start to become. We also, it's also been rejected by the American Psychological Association, the American Psychiatric Association, the actual diagnostic manual itself, the DSM. Some people say, oh, well, the, the, uh, the World Health Organization, yes, but they're talking about out-of-control sexuality. They do not use the word sex addiction. They have, a, they have a sexual health model. The organization, ASECT, who literally certifies around the world the sex therapists and educators themselves have, has also put out a, reject, a paper rejecting it. Not because people don't struggle with sexuality. People struggle with everything. We'll help you. But we don't use those terms because there isn't even an operational definition. When everyone says that word, they're, they're using their own definition. We don't have a standard definition. Everyone's using their own. And that's also part of the problem. It's also being misapplied by people that are afraid or scared of themselves or the sex that they're hearing other people are having. And that's why I'm always telling people, go see a sex therapist. That's someone who's trained to be able to hold space to, without shaming, really work through the kinds of things that turn you on. Now, the reason why this is so important, and I forgot to kind of front load this, is when we heard about the murders, the shootings in Atlanta, the individual who did the, sh the murders uh, was claiming that they were a sex addict. And that whole scenario was, was about racism, toxic masculinity, and even sex phobia. He said he felt overwhelmed by sexual impulses and wanted to remove anything that he might engage in sexually. Again, there's also racism. He was known for targeting and saying anti-Asian commentary, racism. And there's always toxic masculinity, male targeting and murdering women, that's in there. And we don't want people to be able to use this diagnosis as a way to normalize their sociopathy or their racism or their narcissism, that's where the work lies. Not going to get a, you know, going to a treatment center to treat their sex addiction, to treat their sexual impulses. The problem wasn't the sexual impulses. If someone murders someone, we have a larger boundary impulse control issue because this person has no empathy, no value for human life. We're talking about a sociopath and that's where the treatment needs to go. But when we sling around these other labels and I know people are very confused, but <clears throat> again, when you imagine someone who's addicted to drugs and alcohol, they're often willing, well, let me not use the word willing because it's definitely someone you know who's struggling with something, not willing, but you will see them prioritizing drug or alcohol use over housing, finances, you'll see people living on the streets, um, missing important elements of their life, um, spending money they don't have. You won't see that with sexuality or even with food because those things tend to be out of control, they tend to be compulsive, it's around impulses, but it's not the same thing as addiction. It's a very different um, way that it manifests itself. Um, all right, when we come back, we're going to keep breaking this on down. Um, and then, of course, we'll be doing some DMs. So if you got a DM for us, drop it in our Loveline IG page. DMs are always open. Um, want to check out some past episodes of Loveline? You can do so by going to wearechannelq.com. Scroll on down, look for my face, click on it. All the episodes are there. While you're there, you might as well also check out some of these other amazing shows. Just throwing a little extra love at the uh, rest of my Channel Q family. But when we come back, we're going to keep talking about this <clears throat> because it's still in the news and uh, going to hear more about it. I put out a couple articles, though. So if you want to read more or this isn't landing the way you thought, my both my books, Sex Outside the Lines and Rebel Love, Unpack This. I also recommend a great book called The Myth of Sex Addiction. And uh, my social medias. I posted a bunch of the articles that I myself have written on this. So before you um, battle, read, do a little research. You're listening to Love Line with Dr. Chris on the new Channel Q and Odyssey. All right, we're back and we're talking about sex addiction, uh, again, mainly because of it's back in the news. It was very much so with Tiger Woods. Then it was again with Harvey Weinstein. Now it is again with the murders in Atlanta. And again with Tiger Woods, this was just someone who 
never really felt accepted, never had a lot of confidence, rose to fame, wasn't honoring boundaries, and was really just a jerk. Um, he wasn't, you know, again, to say he was a sex addict because he cheated is really unkind to people that deal with impulse control and boundaries. This was just someone who wasn't caring about it, the impact he had on others. He took the time to find these women. He took the time to see them secretly. All of that has a lot of forethought. All of that has a lot of steps along the way that involve choice. That's not someone trapped in an addiction of any kind. That's someone who's making bad decisions and then starts to feel bad about it. Harvey Weinstein's the same thing. That is someone who was at the top end of narcissism or sociopathy. He was in a position of control, um, had no boundaries, continually did these issues, uh, forced himself and sexually assaulted women. But again, it wasn't, it wasn't compulsive. He was doing it at the right time, in the right place. He knew what he was doing. He was repeatedly doing it after having pushback. He could have gotten into therapy at any point along the way. He just, again, had other issues. And now we have the shooter as well. So again, the problem is when we use these, these uh, different labels, we're, we're wiping away the fact that the shootings in Atlanta was someone who's a white supremacist, a violent predator, and lacked empathy. And we don't want to excuse that violence or racism by saying, oh, this kid's a sex addict, you know? And like we said, all the major organizations have rejected it. And it doesn't have a universal definition, but what it does do is it shames diverse and creative sexuality. And that's part of the work of just human rights. It's also part of mental health. It's people learning how to integrate and accept. Just because we're turned on by something doesn't mean we're going to engage in it. But, you know, having an arousal that's outside the pattern of what's normal doesn't equate to an addiction. And like we said, the model proposes that everything healthy has to be hetero, monogamous, and intercourse-based. You know, I worked with some clients that had come to see me after having been diagnosed as a sex addict, and they just needed a more sex-positive perspective. One of them was doing years of sex addiction treatment after being told that he was a sex addict because he would travel and pay for sex. But that's because he lived on a very small island, was bisexual, didn't have access to same-sexed partners, and would travel so he could engage and socialize and maybe meet someone to date. There's nothing sex-addicted in that. That was a healthy, natural impulse. You know what I mean? That hurts my heart. I also had an individual come in, self-diagnosed, who was calling himself a sex addict because he was uncomfortable with some of the things he was aroused by. But... You're not an addict. You're uncomfortable with parts of your sexuality, whether it's gay, whether it's same-sex uh, gender attraction or things that are kinky. A sex addiction treatment plan, shaming and calling it an addiction doesn't help you do the important necessary work, which is about, again, acceptance and integration. How do I accept that this is who I am? How do I decide in what ways, if at all, I want to engage in it? But it's not an addiction. It's a core part of who we are. And as we talk about all the time, our general self-esteem is impacted by our body and sexual self-esteem. And we cannot move through the world in an empowered, confident way if we're feeling shame or guilt about threads or elements of who we are. And so part of full self-esteem is learning to love our body or at least neutralize the impact our thoughts or opinions about our body or the wider world has about our body on our psyches. And the same thing with sexuality. And that's where the work has to go. Because again, sex is great for self-soothing. It's a coping mechanism. It's self-care, right? But what happens in the sex addiction treatment models, the way they diagnose it and treat it is often you'll see a lot of moral standards. Now, another reason why it's even gotten more horrifying, and this is work done from a friend of the show, Dr. Dr. Nikki Prouse, and she's a psychologist and a researcher, and she's showing us the darker side, that a lot of people in these online forums that are, and this is an article she just put out, that are doing the online forums um, around pornography addiction 
are actually a really scary new movement and they've led to threatening her life based on the research she's putting out there challenging pornography use and sex as not being an addiction, which there's a bulk of information out there. Most of the people that attack me back saying sex addiction is real and I have it, they haven't even done the research. They themselves are lost in not understanding how healthy sexuality works and they're not even doing the research, they're not reading the articles, they're just slinging this stuff around and that's what happens. So the new anti-sex movement, this porn addiction movement, they're anti-pornography feminists, which I don't believe you could be a feminist and be anti-porn. They're also religious morality-based groups and it's very much tied to the incel groups. And there's so much research behind there, but they're about 99% male and they're hyper-religious. They believe in these gender norms of masculinity being about dominance and tradition. They are completely homophobic and they're all about finding pure women. So it's this whole like sex phobic movement where they really want to apply pornography addiction or sex addiction to anyone who uses masturbation or pornography almost at all. And the, and the nofap community is just as gnarly. It's really shaming healthy natural uses and expressions of our body. Our sexualities are something we can't be afraid of. We have to learn how to allow them to exist. It's a healthy part of the psyche. It's a healthy part of socialization. And, and what we have to learn how to do is better encounter and have a relationship with these elements that scare us out in the world versus trying to push it back into our shadow. We know that anything you try to hide or deny or minimize will still exist and it will leak out and harm yourself and others in other ways. We have to learn how to face these parts of ourselves, get more familiar with the kind of sex we have, right? Get more familiar with the things that turn us on, get more familiar with our sexual arousal patterns. Some people are more hypersexual than others. Some people like more diverse things than other people. Some, you know, it's about understanding and healing in that way, not further traumatizing. So again, pick up some of the books, do some of the research. We'll continue to talk about this. Um, it's just that it creates a lot of damage and there's a better way. There's another way. Uh, and that's part of the work. All right, y'all, when we come back, we're going to be sliding into those DMs. You're listening to Loveline with Dr. Chris on the new channel Q and Odyssey. All right, we're back, and now it's time to slide into those DMs. Sliding into the DMs. This one says, hey, Dr. Chris, I've been with my girlfriend for about a year now. The beginning was incredible. But now, as things are starting to open back up, I'm noticing she has a lot of insecurities and trust issues. I'm a band manager. Oh, that's a really interesting, cool gig. And we are finally getting back open in a few weeks, and she's been dropping comments like, I'm going to come and check in on you, and better not be flirting behind the bar. Stuff like that, which is both unattractive, kind of scary. How do I address these things with her? Yeah, that's a tough one because some of that behavior actually falls under emotional abuse and what we call toxic monogamy. It's a toxic form of monogamy, this idea that other people are a threat, this idea that we are going to, well, here, let me say it differently. When we feel anxious or insecure, our first, I, our first uh, thought is to try to control and to set rules and to threaten because what she's doing is threatening. Um, and it's coming from her anxieties and insecurities, which I, I have empathy for, and we'll circle back to that. But you have a right to say, hey, listen, I appreciate that it makes you feel insecure and threatened, but I really want to have a healthy adult relationship. And you have to explain to her, trust is built by you letting go, not policing, and uh, learning to trust because I am worthy of trust. And I've demonstrated that. And then you kind of give it back to her because if you are worthy of being trusted, then it's her work. And you don't need to play into that or give into that. You have a right to say, no, please do not show up at my work. 
Um, that's not appropriate. I'm working. And, and no, please do not be, you know, checking in every hour on the hour. That's not appropriate. And if she can't manage that, then it's appropriate for you to leave. Because again, that's emotionally abusive. And to her and anyone that, that's listening that identifies with her, know that your work is learning how to let go. We, when we hold on tighter, it actually makes things worse. And as you hear from him, from his perspective, it's quite toxic for him and it's a turnoff and it should be because that's not a sign she's willing to do the work. Trying to assert more control and trying to please someone's behavior and checking in on them and going through their phone and all those things, that isn't a sign that you're doing the work. That's not a sign that you're trying to be better and it's a red flag to the other person because what you want to do in those moments is say, look, if I'm not, if this person can't be trusted, then I need to leave the relationship. But if they can, it's my job to manage my triggers and if I'm feeling insecure, I have to really talk myself through that and say, what is this about? What is my work in this? I need to let go, right? Um, I need to see that he goes and he comes back. I need to see that all's well. And sometimes it's a sign you need to get into some therapy and really heal those wounds, right? Because you don't want to inflict whatever trauma created your lack of trust on other people, especially when they haven't done anything to deserve it. It burns healthy people and healthy relationships out. Healthy people don't stick around to that. I know I would never. I'm worthy of trust, not only date people that are able and willing to trust me. And I know if someone was saying things like that to me, I'd be like, I'm going to, the minute it was said, I'd say, I'm going to stop you. That's not appropriate. That's emotionally abusive and controlling. I appreciate that you feel insecure. And I would say to them, I'll do my best to be present and to let you know that you're important to me. And that's what I would say to him is, uh, you know, if, if you're on your way to work, say, have a great night. Maybe from work, if you're thinking about her, send her a cute message saying, hey, on my mind, hope your night's going well. It's okay to be very present. It's okay to try to do things that reassure a partner, but it's not your job to take on their, their attempt to assert control. I wrote an article about this, so definitely go look it up. It's called I don't remember exactly what I titled it, to be honest, but I posted the link on my IG. It's on my Medium page, which is a, a site that hosts articles. Um, it's on my Twitter. So go read it. But uh, long story short, your girlfriend has the work to do. Put it back on her. And if she's showing signs of working on it and trying to be better, all's well. But if not, then it's time to go because it's only going to maintain. It's only going to maybe get worse, right? And so try to be reassuring. Try to be very transparent with her around what you're doing and where you are. But hold your boundaries. You don't need to accommodate her jealousy or insecurity because it's not always rooted in anything reality-based and it can really start to get toxic and limit your lives, right? Um, it's her work to really understand what better boundaries look like, to really learn how to let go and sit in the anxiety of letting go and really interrogating what is it that she's afraid of, you know? Because in a healthy relationship, there's nothing to be afraid of all as well. It's a difficult thing though, jealousy, insecurity, but some of that's also because we don't date from a really ethical place. And so we've set some people up to move through the world, never feeling like they can trust others. So it's also our work to only be in healthy relationships so that we're reminded that, you know, love and care is real. Good luck though. Coming up tomorrow, we're going to be talking about mindfulness around emotions, better way to deal with emotions, as well as uh, worst first date stories. Oh yeah. Some real zingers some real freaking zingers of things we'll do on dates. And then we're going to be talking about healthcare for a, I'm sorry, we're going to be also talking about self-care for healthcare workers. Stick around for that and DMs. Always open. If you got a DM for us, drop it in our Love Energy page. As always, y'all, thanks for hanging out and you enjoy the rest of your night.